If you've been here at Evanston Bible Fellowship for any length of time, you've heard us describe ourselves as a teaching hospital. At a teaching hospital, uh, men and women who are being trained to uh, be care- to take care of the body are, are trained in-house. And we think the same thing should happen as folks are, are being in- trained to uh, take care of the soul. We want to give them opportunity to be trained in-house. Today, um, we are going to be having Dan Davis preaching for us. Um, Jason, I'm sorry to say, Dan is probably the coolest guy to ever get in the pulpit, in my opinion. Um, inclu- yep. So, Also, Dan and I were talking, he might be the person with the longest hair ever to preach at EBF. But more importantly, um, Dan has served on crew campus staff at Northwestern for the last six years. He's done that faithfully, and a lot of the students who are here have been touched by his ministry. And as with so many people here at EBF, he will be moving on August 1st to serve on campus staff at Central Michigan University and and take up a great opportunity to reach over 20,000 young people for Christ. More importantly than that, he's married to his wife, Alicia, with four kids, Evelyn, Kale, Gwyneth, and as of Tuesday, I'm going to say that again, as of Tuesday, Violet May. And more than that, most important of all, and we're all about to experience it, um, I can say without reservation that Dan is a person who has a deep and abiding love uh, for the Lord Jesus Christ. And out of that love for the Lord Jesus, he has an incredible, powerful love for people. And we're about to experience that now. So, so Dan, please come forward and bring us the word this morning. Thank you so much, John. I do take a lot of pride in the long hair kind of honor. It's awesome. Okay, well, pretend with me. We'll have a couple exercises of using our imagination. But pretend with me that it's a beautiful summer day on Lake Michigan, probably not too different than like today. It's hot. The sun is out. The beach is packed. And there are people everywhere on the shore for miles up and down the coast um, by the thousands. And people are enjoying the water and getting cool in the, in the surf. So can you visualize that with me? Okay, but you see something terrible coming. A wave is coming, and it's ginormous. The craziest thing is, hardly anyone realizes the danger that's coming. And the thousands just continue playing near the shore, unaware of the danger. So in that instance, what would you do? What would you do? Okay, or maybe this. Imagine that there's going to be a great banquet, a huge feast. And what's so amazing about this feast is not the food or the people there or the entertainment, but it's about this guest of honor. There's just something about him. It's electric to be with him. To be in his presence, it's hard to express in words. Life just seems right. Life makes sense with him. And so the Evites have been sent out to everyone. But you notice hardly very very few people have RSVP'd yes. People just don't seem to get how special it is. Or they've heard about it, but they're unsure because maybe they've heard it's not that great. Or maybe it's a little, they've heard it's going to be boring. Or maybe they've heard some nasty things about this guest of honor. And so they don't want to go. In that case, what would you do? What would you do? Well, if you're on that beach and you saw that the wave was coming, 
Of course, there's concern for yourself, but I hope you want to warn others along, um, along with that. And you can't warn everyone. That's impossible. There's thousands in both directions. Do you go north? Do you go south? What do you do? But you have to act because the wave's coming. And so I would hope that you would want to um, recruit others to help you. You'd have to first convince them the danger and the reality of the wave that's coming. But then you'd want to spread out and warn others. And so you'd recruit some to hopefully go and warn, warn people that they recruit others and others. So that hopefully everyone has a chance to see the danger that's coming. And if you're in the entrance to that banquet, but the multitudes are still on the street, going about their business and everyday activities, unaware and unconcerned that they're missing the time of their lives. And so this too, I hope you would want to go and invite others um, to hopefully recruit others to invite. You'd have to first dispel lies about this banquet and give an accurate description of just how great this feast is going to be. And hopefully, um, the people you came to convince to go would bring others, who would also bring others so that everyone could see the greatness of this guest of honor at this feast. So we are in the church age. Jesus ushered in this church age about 2,000 years ago. And he did this by living a perfect life and dying a perfect death. It was a payment for the consequences we all owe for the crap in our lives that we know is not right. The Bible calls this sin. And Jesus rose from the dead, overcoming death once and for all. And so Jesus, Jesus made a way for man to have a relationship with God. And at this very moment, Jesus, like at this very moment, Jesus is seated on his throne in greatness and majesty. And his offer of fellowship is on the table for you and for me. In this, entire, in this entire world. For those of us who call ourselves Christ followers, we have some point signed on the dotted line to opt into this relationship for God. We have asked Jesus to forgive us our sins and come into our lives. And we have tasted and seen that this gospel is good. It has changed our lives either all at once or gradually, but regardless, it's changed our lives in radical ways. For me, I was a junior in college when I first came to know the Lord. I went to a winter conference. And I remember coming back to the college campus I went to, and I went to the off-campus house that I lived in for the past couple years. And you guys know campus housing. The place was a dump. I lived with five other guys who loved to have parties regularly. And I'll never forget walking through those doors and seeing the beer stains on the carpet, seeing the cigarette holes on the couch, and knowing that... Um, that something happened. Like, there was a buzz in the air. There was a joy in my heart that I never had before. And I knew something happened between me and Jesus, and I would never be the same. And I've been a Christian now for more than a decade, and I continue to experience that life and the joy that comes by God's grace. And that's wonderful. But all is not well with my soul. I am not okay. I've experienced God in a real and personal way, but I know so many other people have not. The very reason for why they were created, to know Jesus, they don't know. And unfortunately, they never will. And that's a hard reality. Last summer, about this time, 
I was overseas and got word that one of my good friends decided to take his own life. He was in my wedding. He was my college roommate. He lived with me in that college house that I mentioned earlier. That was a dump. And he saw my life change in big ways. We had conversation after conversation about Jesus. And at the end of the day, he wanted nothing to do with it. In a room this size, I know I'm not alone. Many of you have lost loved ones. Or, or acquaintances or both who did not know Jesus. It is bitter, is it not? The older we all get, <clears throat> the more we will likely experience these, these casualties. But they are sober reminders for what is at stake. If Jesus is the way, if Jesus is the truth, and if Jesus is the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him, then that wave is coming. The wedding banquet is being prepared What do you do? Our lives should reflect the gravity of what we believe. The very last words of Jesus Christ on earth is found in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This will be the primary passage I use today, but I'm going to bounce around a lot to other passages to answer the question of what do you do? And I think that answer is found in being a disciple. I think being a disciple of Christ involves going and making disciples. And with this, I'm going to unpack three essential, critical, indispensable qualities of what a disciple of Christ looks like. And as I'm going over these three distinctives of what a disciple really is, I want to remind you that these aren't preconditions for becoming a Christian, but rather how someone who is a Christian should now live. And so what's a disciple? A biblical disciple is someone who walks by faith, communicates their faith, and multiplies their faith. And so I challenge you to evaluate yourselves as we go along. And so let's dive into the first distinctive of a biblical disciple. And so the first one's walks by faith. And so the book of Hebrews says that the just shall live by faith. Now walking by faith is a love relationship with Jesus that is dynamic and it's marked by growth. Sincere love manifests itself in action. And obedience will grow in our life as we sin less and are transformed more into the image of our creator. Tools in doing so can be reading and studying the Bible, can be prayer, can be worship, fasting, evangelism, service, and giving. Now again, these aren't things, um, they're not boxes to check off to prove your position, but they are tools and pathways that we use to continue to experience this relationship with God and to deepen that walk. And I think I can boil this down even more. On the screen here, I have a visual of what it looks like, and it's called the gospel grid. That's awesome. 
And we have, uh, so you see, at conversion, we have the growing awareness of God's holiness is that upper bar, and the lower bar is growing awareness of my flesh and sinfulness. So at conversion, um, we have this awareness of our sin, and we have this awareness of God's holiness, and there's a gap there in between. It's limited, but you know enough to, need, to see the need for the gospel in your life. And that's represented by that little cross. And so the hope and goal is that the more you learn and grow, you get a bigger view of God. He is more awesome and holy than you once thought. And two, you also learn that you are so much more of a sinner than you once thought as well. And the gospel has gotten bigger. Jesus' sacrifice has gotten greater. Our appreciation grows, and so does our love for him. And we fall more in love with who he is. And so this Christian life is not figuring things out more and becoming more independent, but it's rather seeing clearly reality that we need him more than we ever thought and depending on him. So a couple years ago, I was hanging out with a student, and I was asking about his relationship with God and how that was all going. He was honest with me, which I appreciated, but he said it wasn't going very well. And it hasn't been for a while. And he just never had anything in his life to motivate him to do anything about it. Now, he said he should get right with God and get serious, but again, he just couldn't see a reason to do that. And so, of course, I was pretty concerned, and I took him to a passage of Scripture, and I challenged him if he really thought he was a Christian. And right away, he quickly told me all the right answers and assured me, yes, indeed, he was a Christian. But he could tell I didn't understand or didn't buy it. And so he tried to dumb it down for me. And he said, it's like this, Dan. Why should I get an A-plus with God when I can get by on a C? Now, in academics at Northwestern, this is blasphemous talk. No one gets a C. Um, but on a spiritual level, I wonder if we all haven't thought something similar to that. And this student just had the guts to admit it. I think it all comes down to love. Do we really love God? Or is he just a nice concept or idea to live by? I think one of my friend's problems is that he no longer loved God for who he is. And he lost all motivation then to live for him day by day and to walk by faith. I think it would be like this. So I've been married to Alicia for 11 years now. And what do you think my wife would feel like if I came home tonight and I brought her flowers, I washed the dishes, I took out the trash and said, Alicia, I know I'm legally bound to be married to you and I plan to stick by you. But honestly, I just want to put enough effort into this marriage to get by. Um, you know, like... Oh, sorry. Um, so don't expect a whole lot from me. Matter of fact, expect the minimum. I don't think I'm going to love you as much as I know I should. I'm, I, I'm going to love you just enough to get by, right? I mean, why do I need to get an A-plus in our marriage when I can get by on a C? What do you think that would do for our relationship? Would you feel loved at all? And I know it's ridiculous. And when we say a similar version of that to God, what does that reveal about our hearts? It comes back to love. It's the crux of the relationship. It's not about what we do, like the minimum. If we truly love God, we're going to express that love completely. It's a natural flow out of our relationship with him. I think we're all in or all out with this. We don't get by on a sea. So this walking by faith is, a, is foundational to being a biblical disciple. If we're not living out this vibrant, growing relationship with the Lord, 
then we have little to no chance to live out the next two distinctives of a biblical disciple. So the second distinctive of a biblical disciple is one who communicates their faith. And the passage is in Romans 10, 14 through 15. And it reads, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So look in that passage in 15. Who is sent? Who is sent? Well, thinking back to Matthew 28, the main passage I'm using, Jesus is speaking to every known believer on that mountaintop. And he says, go. I think for us, how easily we can read the scriptures and we can claim the blessings from scripture for ourselves. But we don't do so for the commands of Jesus in scripture as well. And can we really have all of God's blessings without keeping any of his commands? Bill Bright, the founder of Crew, the organization I'm with, had a principle that he called the sound mind principle. And it had two questions. And it went like this. First question, what is the single most greatest thing that has ever happened in your life? So think about that in your head. What's the greatest thing that's ever happened in your life? Bill's answer was, the greatest thing that's ever happened in his life was coming to know Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. Second question, what is the single most greatest thing that you can do for another person? Bill's answer was, the single greatest thing I can do for another is to share the claims of Christ and to give them an opportunity to respond. Robert Coleman, he's the author of a book called The Master Plan of Evangelism, which I'll quote more of him later, says, Evangelism is not an optional accessory to our life. It is the heartbeat of all that we are called to do, to be and do. It is the commission of the church which gives meaning to all else that is undertaken in the name of Christ. Educational institutions, social programs, hospitals, church meetings of any kind, everything done in the name of Christ has its justification in fulfilling this mission. So a biblical disciple as an integral part of their life, shares their faith. And as I want you to evaluate yourself in terms of communicating your faith, I want you to reflect in light of what I call the three relational modes of evangelism. As crew staff, we evaluate our campus movements with the question, do we see all three modes being used? Because as we look at scripture, we see God using all three to reach his world. And so we often find that as we incorporate these same three modes that God uses, there's a synergy that starts to happen with our movement and becomes a powerful witness to their community. So let's go through these three relational modes of evangelism. The first one is body mode evangelism. And so this is simply inviting people into the body of Christ, and they witness and personally experience the gospel in action. Example from this in Scripture is Acts 2, 42-47. And so this might be a familiar passage to some of you, but I want you to picture this passage from the eyes of non-believers seeing this community for the first time. So have that in your mind as we read this passage. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. 
And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So they lived in such an attractive community, marked by Jesus, that people wanted in. Now for us, this would be inviting people to EBF, to our ethos groups, or just to our Christian circle of friends, so that they can see the gospel lived out amongst us. Francis Chan struggles with this point, though, and he had a book called Multiply. He says, if all we ever do is to gather in a private building on Sundays and perhaps meet in someone's home for a midweek Bible study, the world will never know whether we are united or not. So I think the challenge for you and me is to really bring people into our lives and create safe places for them to interact in our Christian circles and see the gospel lived out. And maybe it's even living out the gospel community in their circle of friends and taking it to them. But some way, we need them to experience the body of Christ truly. So that's the first mode of evangelism is body mode. The second mode is natural mode evangelism. And this is where you communicate your faith with those who are in your natural sphere of influence. This would be your family, your friends, your coworkers, your acquaintances. Example of this in scripture would be the Samaritan woman at the well. I'm going to read John 4, 28 through 30. And this is right after the woman just got done speaking with Jesus. And it reads, So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him, to Jesus. So this woman at the well experienced Jesus and couldn't help but going back to her own town, inviting others um, to see for themselves. Shouldn't this be true for us too? If we're walking by faith, falling more in love with Jesus, then it'd only be natural to talk about him and talk about what we're passionate about. And I think this is an important mode as well because I think we each have unique networks of friends. You really might be the only Christian friend some people might have. So that's the second mode. That's natural mode. The third and final mode of this relational modes of evangelism is ministry mode evangelism. And this is the mode where you intentionally reach out to someone with the purpose of sharing your faith. This is typically done outside your sphere of influence. And today, this is not, honestly, a very popular mode of evangelism. But biblically, when you look at the scriptures, it's the most represented. Um, It's everywhere. Jesus went from town to town proclaiming the coming of the kingdom of God. Paul and Peter um, in Acts, they communicated from Jerusalem to all the known world. My favorite passage of this is found in Acts 5, verses 40 through 42. And it reads, And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were, counted, they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. I think this mode of evangelism is just as needed today as it was 2,000 years ago. Because simply, there are people who do not have Christians in their life. Or they do, and those Christians aren't um, willing to share the gospel with them. This is also a great mode to take a disciple out, to share and model um, how do you show your faith so they have experience and confidence to do it themselves. More so, this mode of evangelism still works. I just got an update from a student this summer, and she's in Ocean City, New Jersey, for a summer project. And she writes, 
This week, our goal was to do something totally overwhelming and frankly terrifying, spreading the gospel up and down the boardwalks of Ocean City. They had a goal of um, sharing the gospel, having spiritual conversations with over 5,000 people in just one week. And she writes again, And God's faithfulness shone through. By the end of the week, 149 people had prayed to receive Christ. And the best part was, I got to lead 10 of those people to make that decision, which is so humbling. God's overwhelming power totally trumped me in my tiredness, inadequacy, and desire to seek my own comfort instead of talking to people. He met and exceeded our goal, made in faith. It was truly overwhelming, overwhelmingly awesome. So, I don't know if you've ever led someone to Christ before or not, but evangelism is not an obligation. I will always remember my wedding day. I will always remember the birth of my four kids, one being very fresh in my memory. But I will also never forget the joy and the experience of seeing people truly coming to know Jesus. There's nothing like it. So that wraps up communicating their faith. And so we're moving on to the third and last distinctive of a biblical disciple. And that is a disciple multiplies their faith. And so multiplication is just not stopping um, with just bringing someone to Christ, but is building into that disciple to bring him or her to maturity where they are now capable to share their faith and to win others to Christ as well. Roger Hershey, he wrote a book called The Finishers, has a definition of discipleship. And it reads, It is the intentional investment of my life into another to guide him or her toward maturity in Christ. And, he says, he's convinced that this is the most significant element missing in the body of Christ today. Now, I know my greatest times of growth have come when I'm um, with, my, with a mentor, and he is speaking truth in my life, he's showing me grace, um, and he's modeling life to me. And I think one of the greatest verses that give us a picture of this multiplication is 2 Timothy 2.2. It's a short verse, but it reads, And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So I even made a diagram of this verse. Um, and so the message starts with Paul, and then is passed on to Timothy. There it is. So Paul, and then Timothy. And then um, Timothy and many witnesses, who passes the message on to faithful men, who will then pass it on to others. So in just one verse, you see four generations of the message being passed on to. And this is the idea of what we call spiritual multiplication. And this idea of spiritual multiplication is very powerful. So, for example, let's pretend that there is just one Christian in this world, and there are seven billion people who do not know Christ. And so if that one Christian was able to reach just two people with the gospel, and then they became Christians, he then poured his life into those two, and they were able to share their faith and disciple others. Then those two would each reach two more. And then those four would each reach two more. You have this crazy multiplying effect. I had one of my students do the math. He just graduated in chemical engineering, so I trust him on this. I know I can't claim any of it for myself. Um, so here's the math. And here's some assumptions about it. Seven million, one Christian in the world, and every Christian makes disciples. Okay, go on to the math. Okay, there it is. I have no idea what that is, but I trust him. And so the results is that one Christian would reach 7 billion people in just 32.7 generations, so 33 generations. And so let's just say it took two years to train a new believer how to share their faith and disciple others. 
it would only take about 66 years to fulfill the Great Commission. That's within our lifetime. Well, some of our lifetimes. Um, I, don't, I think it'd be 99, so probably not. But close, very close. Um, and so I know the math is nice and clean. I know life is messy. So I want to show you a couple real-world examples of spiritual multiplication. The first one is a student who just graduated this spring. His name is Matt Markwell. And during uh, just his college career, um, he was able to see his roommate, Mike, and a friend across the hall, Steve, both come to faith. And awkwardly, they're both here, sitting next to each other. <laughs> Hi, Steve. Hi, Mike. Um, I didn't think they'd be here. And so Mike and Steve um, were discipled, and they grew like weeds. And they started sharing their faith. Right? Yep. And they started with their brothers. And so Mike um, saw his younger brother accept Christ, which is really cool. And Steve saw his twin brother accept Christ. Um, and then Mike also, Mike went sharing with, um, well, I would say, then Mike also saw one of his best friends from high school accept Christ. And Steve saw one of his uh, cousins accept Christ. And then Mike saw, um, went sharing with Matt Markwell and saw another person, a student, accept Christ. Uh, me and Steve went sharing and saw another person accept Christ. And I think they both saw another two or three people accept Christ in their college career. Um, and Mike just came back from the Middle East. Can I say this? It's okay? Sweet. And uh, just saw a Muslim man accept Christ into his life as well, which is really awesome. And then um, several weeks ago, I was, uh, my wife and I had an international dinner. So my wife, because she cooked. And for a dinner for international students. And one of the students who helped me invite other international students was um, a guy who came to Christ through Steve. And so it was so cool that like, I got to have dinner with Matt's spiritual grandson. Um, he was helping me reach others, which is so awesome. So that's a picture of that. A second example is uh, a man named Roger Hershey. And he has spent the last 40 years in college ministry sharing his faith and discipling students. And one of his prayers as a young missionary was that he would be able to see students go to all the world. And so he had a map he hung up in his office. And as he would, um, over time, he would write the names of the people who he personally saw, um, raised up and worked with, and go to the world. And he was kind enough to send me a copy of the, a picture of it. There it is. So I don't know if you can see it real well, but those are all names right there. And there's over 100 names on that map. There's names on every continent, except Antarctica. Um, but those 100 plus people are laboring for Jesus all over the globe because one man decided not just to win them to Christ, but to build them up and to send them out to the world. Um, and so I know a lot of us have children, me included. And I was here for that last baby dedication and the stage is big, but it was close. I didn't think we'd all fit. Um, and so I know some of us procreate really well, but the question for all of us that needs to be asked is, do we have spiritual children? Do we have spiritual children? And are we making efforts towards that end? And Jesus said in John fifteen eight, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Robert Coleman says that a bearing Christian is a contradiction. And so the call, to be a, the call to be fruitful for you and me is not just for professional Christians. Um, it's the call of every single one of us. And so I have a passage that I love to share. And I think this is really powerful. It's Ephesians 4, 11 through 12. And it says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So notice in this passage the role of the offices. They are to equip 
who? Equip who? They're to equip the saints. The saints being us, the church. And the church is to do what? The church is to do the work of ministry in building up the body of Christ. Now, Pastor Jason and John and staff have lots of roles on have lots of roles to fulfill in leading the church, but one of their big roles is to equip you and me in doing the work of ministry. Um, it was just not meant for Pastor Jason, for instance. Um, I know he's not the only one who does ministry, but let's just use him for example. Would be the only one who would have a strong personal walk with the Lord, that he would share his faith continually, and that he would build others up into maturity and discipleship. That's a job for all of us. And it's not his job to reach our community. It's our job to reach our community. And so take, for example, if, if it was just Pastor Jason who walked and communicated and multiplied his faith, how far would he get? And when I know that's not you know, the case. But what, how much more of a difference if we all walked and communicate and multiplied our faith? What if we, every single one of us was responsible for those two? I think it would get crazy. It would get crazy fast. Crazy is a good thing. And, um, but two, when we, see, we do ministry, we can't be dissatisfied with just the first fruits of ministry. Um, another quote from the Master Plan Evangelism says, Disciples must be brought to maturity. There can be no substitute for total victory. And our field is the world. We have not been called to hold the fort, but to storm the heights. I love the imagery of this. I love the imagery of advancing the kingdom of God on earth. It's a fight. It's messy. And it's absolutely necessary. If we're not producing leaders for the next generation, then who is? And Jesus does not mess around. When he asks people to count the cost of what it takes to follow him, it's, it's, it's tough. Being a biblical disciple is not easy. I know that. Uh, a couple months ago, we were talking about this in one of the EBF classes. And I was asking what it would really cost to live like this, to walk, communicate, and multiply our lives. The sacrifice, you know, of getting serious about our walk with the Lord. The risk of putting yourself out there by sharing your faith. The time, the time it would take to pour your life into others to see them grow. And Norm Blair, an elder here, uh, turned it around on me. And he said, what would it cost us if we didn't do this? What would it cost us if we didn't do this? And I think that's the better question. And let me tell you, multiplying our faith, that is not an obligation. There is great joy that comes from it. The men I work with aren't just numbers. The guys I've discipled have really, literally become members of my family that I deeply love and care for. There is a camaraderie that we share because we are in it together. We're going for it, and we rely on one another in the midst of it. The other big question is how to practically disciple others. And I'll be honest with you, and I think this is true for evangelism too, I don't think you'll learn how to share your faith and disciple others from just a sermon. Skills like these are more often caught rather than taught. And so, if you want to learn how to communicate your faith to others, I would ask that you ask someone else who knows how to take you. If you want to learn how to disciple others, I would ask, you would ask a respected leader in the church to disciple you and have that modeled to you. Secondly, what I do want to give you are some good resources towards this end. The first one, which I've quoted a lot of, is Robert Coleman's Master Plan and Evangelism. And it says evangelism, but it's mostly a book about discipleship. And Robert Coleman studies the master, Jesus, who not only ministered to the masses, but he spent three years with 12 men and discipled them. 
And those men started the church, and they changed the world. And it's a fantastic book. I highly recommend that. The second one is by Roger Hershey, The Finishers. He's the guy with the map. Um, and the book Finishers is all about finishing the, the Great Commission, going to all the world. And lastly, um, is Crew Press Green. It's a website, and on it is this little tab called Compass. And I think, this is a bold statement, but I think it's the best thing on the internet, hands down. It's a hidden gem. And so it has everything about, um, you see right there, the first four talks are about discipleship, and it's just amazing. Um, and then there's two years of actual discipleship material to take new believers through and help grow them into their faith. And it's, it's awesome. So I, I highly recommend you do that. As well, um, as application, I challenge you to take time to evaluate yourself in light of these three distinctives, walking, communicating, and multiplying your life. And, and pray about that. And I challenge you to, to set some goals of what it looks like to live those out and to make a plan, to make a plan of how you'll do it and share, and share that plan with someone else, to involve someone else in your process. But, you know, why would you want to do any of this anyway, right? Well, because Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Peter says about Jesus, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. I look at all the people in my life, I look at all the people in this world who don't know Jesus, and I'm not okay. Because I know that wave is coming. That wedding banquet is being prepared, and people are going to miss out. EBF, what will we do with the remaining days on this earth? Know this, Jesus commands us all to go and make disciples. He doesn't ask. And I beg you to let your life reflect the gravity of what you believe. Let me finish by praying for us. God, I thank you for you. I thank you, um, yeah, that you are Lord of this world. Um, you're the reason for it. And I pray, um, and thank you that the, the final words of the Great Commission in Matthew 28, it says, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. God, your power and your presence is with us. And the only reason we can do anything is because you are living within us, Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I pray that our love for you in this world would grow and it would cause us to action. I pray that we would demonstrate that love for you with our entire lives. So by the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, I pray that you would give us the strength to do so, to love you, in the name we pray, Jesus. Amen.